You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And this is The Fabulous Invalid. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I'm very excited. We have Ted Chapin coming on today. Yes. Ted Chapin from the R&H organization. Uh, Rogers and Hammerstein organization, for Thank those you. who are listening who don't know what that means. Thanks, Rob. You're welcome. I'm so in the know, I yes. just say R&H. Jamie, you're such an insider. Uh, doesn't everybody know what R&H is? I don't know. I don't like to assume. You know The me. 16 people that listen to us? <laughs> oh, They stop. all know. We have quite a following. We do. So, um, but before we do that... Yes. As we've said before, Leslie is still in tech. Mm-hmm. And then they begin previews. Well, it'll be the tomorrow, actually. Oh, By the time this airs, wow. it'll be tomorrow. So, yeah. yay, Beetlejuice. Huge. And Jenna's uh, busy working on her show. Yes. But before we get into the thick of it, she has a take two that she wants to do. Jamie, you said it right. I did. You always struggle for what our branded name for this segment is. I always struggle with everything, Rob. Well, that's fair. So I'm, I'm going to call her, okay. and we're going we're gonna to talk to her. We'll see if this works. If it doesn't, then I'll just do her take two for her. Uh-huh. I'll clean up her own, I'll clean up her mess right. for her. But let's, let's see if I can do this. Okay, here we go. Working. Hello, it's Jennifer. Jennifer Sarden, it's Jamie Dumont. And Rob Russo. And we're the fabulous invalid. <laughs> hey, I know those guys. You are too. Hi. Hi. Uh, hi, how are you? We're very well. So we hear that you have a you have a take two you'd like to make. Oh my goodness, do I. So I loved our interview with Bob Lana, <laughs> aka Jose Lana. Um, from last week, and my take two is I mentioned I'm going to gift uh, a little book to Rob. I'm actually staring at it. I have two copies, one of which my husband gave me for my 40th birthday, and the other one I just happened to have. But not only did I say the title wrong, I said the author wrong. I said, This is New York by E.E. E. Cummings, and it turns out it's Here is New York by E.E. White. So. so it's here in New York. Here is New York by E.B. White, which is a very, very famous book, and you got it wrong. <laughs> so I failed, and now I have to move out of the park because, <laughs> um, yeah. So that's it. That's my take too. So because uh, I actually love the, the love, I love the book. The last sentence of the first paragraph is, "No one should come to New York to live unless he is willing to be lucky," which mm-hmm. I love. Well, that's so great. that's my that's my correction. Sorry okay. about it. You know. Well, Rob is waiting for his copy, so <laughs> you have to bring it to him soon. Oh, it's, 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 you could read it in a half an hour. You're going to love it. It's, it's so charming. Um, but there it is. So Ooh, I can't wait. All right. Well, thank you, Jen. We love you. I love you. Miss you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay, that was Jennifer Samard. Yay. She's got a book for you. It's Here Is New York by E.B. White and not... Here Comes New York by E. E. Cummings, e. E. Cummings yeah. which is, I don't know how she could get that wrong. <laughs> Shocking. Um, I, I wouldn't have gotten it right either. <laughs> Do you know I can't this wait. book? No, I don't actually, and I can't wait to read it. I love anything about New York. Have you seen the New York documentary? 
the Ken Burns multi-part. No. Do you know what I'm talking no, about? No, I didn't even know this is a thing. Oh, it's a huge thing. But now that I think about it, when it's it probably made? 20 years ago. Yeah, and yeah. you were in Power Ranger Fetus. pajamas. Yeah. And I was never into Power Rangers, for the record. <laughs> just make sure but I liked there. the picture I was drawing yeah, of yeah. you in Power Ranger pajamas. No. Well, I think we should we should turn the mics over to Ted Chapin. Let's do I'm it. Very excited to have him on. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Ted Chapin, whose more than forty-year career in the theater spans from his start as a production assistant on the original production of Follies to his current role as chief creative officer of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. Along the way, he co-founded the Encore series at City Center, served as chairman of the American Theater Wing, and has been a host, interviewer, and participant in a variety of television shows and documentaries about the theater. Ted, welcome to The Fabulous Invalid. Oh, thank you. It's Hi, great Ted. to be here. Hearing 40 years, God, that <laughs> But, uh, you know, time tells. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I well, did start when I was 16, though. That's I exactly that I have right. To say. right. That's right. That's Wait, right. what did you do at 16? I was a production assistant on The, uh, the Unknown Soldier and His Wife by Peter Ustinoff at the Lincoln Center at the Beaumont, before right. Follies, even. So that's the wow. true start. Yeah, that was the true start. <laughs> Where's that book? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, with you stood off, there has to be some stories. I picked the right show to write about. <laughs> what can I say? Well, having just read it, I agree. <laughs> we'll get Thanks. to Follies. Uh, but first, I wanted to start with uh, your current work uh, at the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, which, as I understand, is uh, a music publishing company, a concert rental library, and a theatrical licensor. Mm -hmm. So how do you describe what RNH does, given all those various functions? Well, the, 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 the right place to begin is that when Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, who were at the time halves of two different teams, mm. joined forces to write the musical that became Oklahoma, they'd been in the theater long enough that they knew how the business aspect worked. And since Oklahoma hit this town, like, frankly, the way Hamilton did, they were savvy enough to think, you know what? We could stay, we could hold on to the business part of our creative lives. Mm -hmm. And since they created a, a new show for Broadway every other year from that year until Oscar Hammerstein's death, they just accumulated, the, they managed their own copyrights. And as you point out, that means licensing the, the performances, it means publishing the music, it means licensing concerts, it means licensing film remakes, it, you know, film rights, television rights. It's all sort of all their eggs in one basket. And I've had the honor, I would say, of uh, running it for many, many years. And now uh, under the new world, I'm the chief creative officer, which allows me to do other things. <laughs> were they it. the first that, that held the copyrights? Well, they were, I, I mean, Gilbert and Sullivan was the ones who always are, are spoken of as the people who controlled every aspect of their work. But I think in our world, yeah, they were. And they were also the only ones who kept it consistently. I mean, we also represent Irving Berlin. And mm -hmm. Irving Berlin, interestingly, as he grew up, he was as much a music publisher as a songwriter. Mm. So he knew to hold on to the music publishing as well as the songs. 
but not so much the theater. So it's interesting, but Rodgers and Hammerstein were smart enough. They also I mean, owe to be a fly on the wall when they made these decisions, because I think both men were very savvy businessmen, but you don't write a new musical for Broadway every other year spending right. a whole lot of time talking about business. You gotta get in the room, you gotta talk about the show, you gotta get to the piano, you gotta get to the desk, you gotta write it, produce it. That's what's, I think, astonishing about their accumulated um, catalog. So the difference between Rodgers and Hammerstein and, and Irving Berlin is that he just owned the song and they owned the whole kit and caboodle, everything. Right, because Berlin was a songwriter. For example, when he made the movies that had his wonderful songs in them, he only licensed the songs to that one movie. The movie company has no say over any of the songs in any of those wonderful Fred Astaire movies. Oh, that's you, want, you want to do a stage version of an Irving Berlin musical, you come to us <laughs> for, the, for the music. There you go. Which people have done yes, in the past. Hopefully we'll continue to. That's right, that's right. Well, it's such an amazing library uh, to pull from. Uh, so how did you come to this position, uh, keeping the legacy of Rodgers and Hammerstein alive? Well, I grew up in New York, and like everybody in this room and everybody <laughs> listening to this, I was a, you know, a theater nerd. Um, and I just, I mean, I, I, we have to thank Lin-Manuel Miranda, because I wanted to be in the room where it happened. I didn't want to be a, a this or a that. I just wanted to be there. I just loved it. So, I, and since my father was connected to the arts, I realized that he was a good resource. I would do the, the, the research and realize, okay, this show is going into rehearsal during the summer. I wonder if I could be a production assistant. Dad, who do you know? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was helpful. And I always tell people, and I would continue to, to, to say this, don't ever be bashful about using a connection you have, because if you don't use it, the next person's going to use it. Right. You know, we are not a bashful community. And so just, <laughs> if you have it, go for it. Right, right. So Mary Rogers called me one day. I was running the Musical Theater Lab, which was the first... A not-for-profit organization to encourage new musicals. Mm -hmm. uh, the BMI Workshop, of course, helped writers, but this was to, to produce them. And out of the blue, Mary Rogers, who I had met through my parents, called one day and said, what are you doing? I think they could use you at the Rogers and Hammerstein office. This was also a year after Richard Rogers died. And the families didn't quite know what to do. There was nobody really running it. Mm -hmm. But she said, I think they could use you. you know, go talk to this guy. Here's the telephone number. Goodbye. I'll see you later. You know, and that was 35 years ago. Yeah. Um, and it, it turned out to be a really good match because my accumulated experience in the theaters, again, my ambition to be involved but not necessarily to be a this or a that was very good because I could sort of say, okay, here's a producer who wants to do a production maybe these are the concerns we should, we should you know, look out for, these are the approvals we should have, but ultimately we're not doing it, they're doing it. And also to engage the current theater artists to feel as if they can actually you know, own the production. I think very, very important, because if they own it, if they feel that it's theirs, we'll get better work out of them. Right. And in addition to keeping the, the catalog right. of, of the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you have the Irving Berlin right. work as well. I was looking at the list of shows you licensed uh, last night to prepare. There's a lot of Rodgers and Hart shows 
uh, peppered in, but also some more contemporary work. Yes, um, indeed. Michael I, John Lacusha musicals, right. Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights. In the Heights. And even Be More Chill. Which we have my older daughter. To, just opened on Broadway. We have my older daughter to thank for that. She was, she was the artistic associate at Two River Theater, yeah. where they had commissioned Be More Chill and had not a clue what right. to do with it. Yeah. So she was part of getting the director and the choreographer, and, and oh, wow. she played me Michael in the bathroom and said, yeah. Dad, you got to hear this song. It's one of the best songs written for the musical theater in the last 10 years. And I thought, oh, you know, she's right. So yeah. yes, we have Annika Chapin to thank for our representing <laughs> being more chill. That's amazing. I love it. So when, when you're looking to expand the library, what, what properties, uh, you know, what is that process like and what kind of properties are you looking for? I think like so much in the theater, it's instinct. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we, we felt that Lynn manuel Miranda was an up-and-coming um, artist who, who, whose work was really interesting. And I think I'll think it's fair to say that not all the licensing houses were after um, In the Heights. Right. Um, and we were, and we liked him a lot. And so, you know, we, we, we grabbed it. Um, I don't think anybody's grabbed Hamilton yet, <laughs> right. but I think I'd like to think we're online. <laughs> I don't think they need secondary licensing right. just yet. Just yet, right. Um, but yeah, no, that kind of stuff. It, it's instinct. It's w what we think... Um, our customers would like. One of the things that I think was a conscious decision was, you know, if people come to us for the Rogers and Hammerstein shows, you know, wearing the strictly business hat, if you're in the licensing business, you want a variety. Right. You know, I mean, people go to Tiffany's and they know mm -hmm. that it's turquoise boxes, but they don't remember that the guy made stained glass. You know, Tiffany has become known as a place where everything in there is of high quality. And, right. you know, we have said, you know, that was an image that I used early on. It's like, I'd like us to be thought of that as whatever we have here, we think highly of it. And we'll also, frankly, prepare the materials well so that the orchestration, the notes will be correct, the script will be correct. You know, it will be nicely cued so you'll know where the, where the music cues are and stuff like that. Well, you must know, Ted, that uh, we should subtitle this The King and I Podcast because we talk about The King and I oh, really? on every episode. For some reason, it comes up. You're an obvious connection, but that in Oklahoma. That and in Oklahoma. and yeah. yesterday's episode was Jose Lana. So oh, love Jose. Yeah, he's a pretty special fella. <laughs> Not a king and I. Yeah, he played Lunta and the King. And when he did that, when he took over the King at the Lincoln Center production, where he was put in by the stage manager, and I back, went backstage and said, Jose, did I detect a little of Lou Diamond Phillips in that performance? <laughs> and he said, oh, absolutely. But to his credit, when he did the tour and he could work with Bart Shear, mm. he created a wonderful way of playing that, the King because, you know, Jose is still very youthful. Right. Um, but he was able to find a way of being both youthful and also commanding. Ending, which is important for the King of Siam. Yeah, I saw him do it on the tour, and I, I have to say, I walked into the theater thinking, is he, how, how yeah. is this going to go? And the minute he came on stage, I, I was like, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, he's Well, he also, it. he had the confidence. I mean, it's like, you know, directors are important, yeah. and <laughs> actors need somebody to help them. It's right. part of the DNA of the theater, and for Bart to have worked with Jose, and actually, to Bart's credit, the very, very first discussion about the tour of The King and I, the Lincoln Center production of The, the King and I, he said, Jose, mm. I want Jose to do it. So possibly this might be a little controversial. Go in, for it. in in that production, they reduced the overture. They changed the overture. They changed the overture. So they took some material out. Right. Is that not sacrilegious? Is the overture to a Roger and Hammerstein show not set in stone? Um, good question. <laughs> uh, what I said earlier about 
the sort of magic of making the, the interpretive artists feel as if they can own, own it. Andre Bishop, who I respect enormously, was determined to put Shall We Dance in the overture of The King and I. Um, I didn't much like it, but I figured, okay, they, there's something he, want, he wanted, a, that peppy song in the overture. Um, so we let that happen. Interestingly, The King and I overture is not the actual best overture of the RNH shows. It's long and it is a collection of tunes. Um, South Pacific, don't mess with. Um, <laughs> I agree. Is that your favorite of the overtures? It's just a, well, it's a brilliant overture, as is, is Oklahoma. I mean, but it's yeah. interesting that even even within those good overtures, there are cuts that can be made that you can that are okay. Especially right. now that we know the tunes, right. it is interesting. I'll tell you one little esoteric thing. Um, in the in the era of like, let's have critical editions. Let's have things. At, let's let's make certain that all the notes are correct. Um, it was a wonderful guy named Bruce Pomahack, who was our director of music for years, came to me one day and said, okay, look at the overture of South Pacific. When wonderful guy comes in, the melody is not correct. Because instead of going, I'm at bum, 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 ba, da, 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 bum, bum. He said, the way it's done is bum, 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 bum. So you don't get the I'm as corny as. You don't get those corny, you get those notes. But he said, it's consistent. He showed me the full score, top flutes to bass, all the same, but that's not the melody of the song. So he said, what do you think we should do? And I said, I think we should leave it. Because Richard Rogers, Rob Russell Bennett did it that way. Richard Rogers had ample opportunity to hear it. Right. And they left it that way, and I don't think we go in and change it. Then I said to him, you wanna know my theory? My theory is Bennett was smart enough to realize introducing that tune to an audience that doesn't know it, the umpapa nature, is the most important thing. So if you go boom, 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 ba, 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 you know, that's what I think. But it's so know. interesting because we forget so many years later because we know every right. aspect of every song. We forget that it was they Nobody were knew it. yeah these were new these this was new music and they were also you know. The, Richard Rogers had his team. You know, Trudy Rittman did arrangements, dance arrangements, and vocal arrangements. Robert Russell Bennett did the orchestrations. And oh, to, to figure out, that it's hard to tell who did what, um, because there aren't scores, you know, pencil scores of the overture. So my, again, my guess, having been there for a long time, I, won't, I'm, I will not tell you this is how it happened, but my guess is that Rogers and Bennett had a conversation and, and Roger said, I'd like you to, you know, I'd like the tunes in there, but, you know, I'd like to do this. But I bet it's Bennett who thought, you know what, let's start The King and I with these big chords telling everybody we're in a, we're in a regal place, <laughs> you know, and let's start Oklahoma with all those violins, you know, uh. doing this sort of turkey in the straw kind of thing, <laughs> you know, and let's start South Pacific with Bally High. Let's place the audience right where we want them right from the beginning. Well, I have to ask, this is probably the most annoying question you ever get, but 
um, of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Is there one that uh, is a particular favorite of yours? Now, I, okay, this is gonna seem like a goof because of what you said to me earlier, but actually it's the king, king and, and I. I. <laughs> Bingo, we have a winner. <laughs> no, I just, the, the thing is, I just, it was first of all, the first one I ever saw mm. um, at the Music Theater of Lincoln Center at the New York State Theater when I was a kid. So it was majestic and, and you know, and I th thought it was wonderful. Is that the one with Barbara Cook? No, that was Reza Stevens and Garen, Darren McCabin. Darren McGavin as the king? As the king of Siam. Wow. Yeah. Could but, he do it? Yeah, no, I, I was, whatever, 12, 13. I thought he was great. Um, <laughs> but I just find, in the, in the years that I've dealt with all the R&H shows, there's a wisdom in The King and I mm. that I think is kind of, kind of astonishing, especially since some people think it's, it's politically incorrect. But you realize that, you know, first of all, historically, The King asked to get, have this woman from the West, asked for the West to come so he could study how they thought so he wouldn't be invaded. You know, and the fact that she stands up and says, wait a minute, you made a bargain with me, and he, because he's full of bluster and he's the king of everything and he can do whatever he wants, just dismisses it. You know, and, and that denouement at the end of the first act of showing, okay, these are two human beings who are actually having quite an effect on each other, almost despite themselves. Yeah. And I, I always find that moving, especially at that moment at the end of The King and I, when just before he says you can have a house, when suddenly there's this major chord. Mm. And it's like, and you know, a lot of the audience doesn't realize what's going on, but it's all that Buddhist, you know, pray to Buddha, pray to Buddha, I do this, do this, do this, and then this chord that is so expansive, and he says, and give this unworthy woman a house. And it's like, that's, what, that's savvy theater writing, because we may not know why we're feeling good with that chord, but then we get the good on top of the good. And Buddha. I promise you that I shall give this unworthy woman a house. We shall build her a house of her own, a brick residence, a joining royal palace, according to agreement, etc. 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 And Buddha, I promise you that I shall give this unworthy woman a house. We shall build her a house of her own. A brick residence adjoining the royal palace, according to agreement. It's so much of the invisible work that Rodgers and Hammerstein did that people go, you know, you might, it's easy to look at the, the oeuvre and say, oh, you know, these are some fun, chipper shows or whatever, or, you know, but when you dig deep, when you start to really pick it apart, they were, they were very, everything was so purposeful. They were very clever and very mm -hmm. smart. Um, I mean, it's funny, one of the thing, reasons I've liked the job that I've had for so long yeah. is that I still learn things. Right. I mean, there was a production of The Sound of Music a couple of years ago where in So Long Farewell, I suddenly thought, oh my God, Brigida is the one who sings, I cannot tell a lie. Because not only can she not tell a lie, she's the one who rats, 
who says he's in love, you're in love with him and he's in love with you. Yeah. It's like that's Brigida, who's just okay, got it. She's telling you who she is. Exactly. exactly. And you don't even know it. You don't realize it, it yeah. but then it's, you know, again, subliminally, I think it's also part of why the shows continue to be successful, is that they are they exist in layers. There are more layers to these shows than people mm. may think. Right. Um, you know, and it's just maybe sort of, oh yeah, well that's just a, you know, sort of a musical comedy with a couple of good tunes right. that I'm sick of. It's well, like no 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 no. Isn't that about to be proven eight shows? a week at Circle in the Square. Something's going to be proven, and we'll see what it is. It's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Have you seen the production? I saw it at Bard. I saw it at St. Anne's, and I will probably be there the first oh, possible <laughs> evening. Oh, I can, as I, Because as much as I love The King and I, and it is my favorite of the shows, I think this production of Oklahoma is stunning. It does something that I've never seen any other production do, because it forces you to listen to the libretto in a very controlled way. Because it doesn't, I've said to people, it doesn't have the highs and the lows that you expect in a production of Oklahoma if you know Oklahoma. So it, it, it's almost like you're sitting on the edge of your chair thinking, okay, I think I know this show, but I don't remember that line, and I don't, oh, and I don't remember <laughs> feeling that that's happening between those two characters, or who's, that guy sitting over there, oh, oh, he's actually, you know, he's a townsperson who's having an effect on everybody. So it's very, it's really, really interesting. I, my only concern, and it con, it's continued from the very beginning, is, you know, will there be people who expect uh, their Oklahoma to be done a certain way? And whether they're disappointed or whether they're willing, as you are, to go with it and to say, you know what, I'm, I'm with it. Yeah, probably both. We yeah. had, we, we had um, Mary Testa and Ali Stroker here a couple of weeks ago, and they, we asked them, and they said that, you know, people walk out. You know, people... I experienced people, it. Yeah, people, yeah, you had that same, people get upset. Yeah, it's interesting. I went, um, I went to Theater Under the Stars to see a friend of mine play Judd Fry in their production of Oklahoma uh, this fall on a Thursday, and then a week later, I went to St. Anne's, <laughs> and the, I don't know if you know the, the Theater Under the Stars production, but they worked with the Houston Ballet, so the ballet was really lush and, right. and really extraordinary. Um, and it, you know, it was a full orchestra, the whole thing. And then it had been a few years since I had seen the, Saint An the, the Bard production. And it was so interesting to see the lush, very classic version mm -hmm. of Oklahoma and then to sit in St. Anne's. And, and like you said, the, the book is what really comes through. Yep. And it's extraordinary how 75 years later, it, it means everything it meant then and more. And the, the, the production that you talked about with the Houston Ballet, which, which used the idea, with the convention of having a, a dancing curly, and they brought him right out at the very beginning in the first scene. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's interesting. So that they're, they're sort of taking a convention which some people like to get away from, and they're embracing it because they're, they're taking a very big ballet point of view with it. When I went to see it in Houston, I then went to, to Denver to see the all-black production that, oh. that was done there that had been done first at Portland. And then earlier in the summer, I'd been in the, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival right. where Bill Rausch did one with gender, some very specific gender changes. So it's like 75 years later, this property can support all these different ways of looking at, at, at this show. And it's it's... 
it's kind of exciting. I have oh to say. It is. It, it just. It I loved following all those productions. Yeah, yeah the, the, and it proves that the show is. It it is a remarkable, extraordinary piece right. of sort of life changing. It couldn't withstand all these various takes. Right. If, it, if what was underneath. Right. It's not as strong as it is. But I'll give you a preview of, of the lyrics and lyricists that I'm doing. I'm, I was asked to do one on Oklahoma, which is before the St. Anne's one was coming to mm. Broadway, so I thought, now I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> but I always knew I wanted to start, and I've been working with Andy Einhorn, who was great, about where were these two guys before they were asked to do Oklahoma? Mm. I mean, we know the story that, that, Hart, that Rogers was concerned about Lorenz Hart, because he was sort of fading away and that Hammerstein had had a lot of failures. But just we asked ourselves, but what was going on with those guys? And the interesting thing I've discovered, looking at a lot of letters from Oscar Hammerstein during the year of 42 to 43, he hardly ever makes reference to it. The letters are about Carmen Jones and about a new movie of Showboat and a production of Showboat on the West, uh, on the West Coast. And occasionally, I'm working on a show with Rogers, and we're going into rehearsal in February. So I thought the, the conclusion that I build is that they just they wrote the show the way they felt it should be written. They were they were not, they didn't they may not even have been aware of the fact that in doing this show, this story, the way these two guys from these different slightly different backgrounds, they just these are the sparks flew, and they just mm. wrote the show. Elaine Steinbeck, who's one of the great people of the world, um, who was a stage manager on Oklahoma, said there was nobody like Rodgers and Hammerstein out of town on their shows. Mm. Fearless. They, you know, their ability to watch the show with an audience and then say, okay, here's what we're doing, and how, this is how we're doing it, and without any question. She also she felt, because by that point she was married to John Steinbeck, it was one of the problems with Pipe Dream mm. because Rogers was sick. He had a cancer operation. They, they sat around the room first day of rehearsal. They read the script, and then Rogers went to Sloan Kettering and had part of his jaw removed. And she said there was, that there was vulnerability to the team suddenly, and so they didn't, they didn't have the opportunity to do the kind of work that they were known to do. Whether that would have made Pipe Jimmy hit or not, I'm not <laughs> sure, but it was a good story. Yeah. Well, I held back on saying this earlier, but I actually, my favorite overture is the overture to Pipe Dream. It's great. I it's love great. that overture. I, obviously, it's not the greatest overture that they wrote, but it is my personal favorite. I just love that. It's overture. also, it, again, it, what, part of what these guys knew what to do. You're, you're in Monterey. You're surrounded by water. You know, that overture it gives, you, gives you the time and place. <laughs> They did it really well. And that was, again, part of my job that was fun. It was at the Zitz Probe when the orchestra sits there and the singers just stand up and sing. Mary Rogers was still alive and she sat next to me and she would do this occasionally. That I think Will Chase was singing one song and she pointed to her arm and said, Goosebumps. <laughs> and it was a Friday and I remember thinking, okay, Friday. We'll never, nobody will have the time or the effort to put this in a studio, but I wonder, because City Center had been renovated and I knew that the, the sound system had been upgraded. So I had the weekend to find out what it would cost and whether we could do it, in, whether it would be any good. 
Um, so I had to find out whether the bosses by that point, the families had sold it to this Dutch company that didn't like to spend money on anything, <laughs> whether they would pay for this and whether city center and how much it would cost. Anyway, by, by Tuesday, we pushed the go button wow. um, and, and made that recording. And I'm, I'm very proud of that recording because I think it, it, it really, it doesn't sound like a live recording made in a high school. It's, no. You know, no, it's, it's a great recording. And, and Scott Lehrer, who was, we, we brought in a deck and put it in the basement, and sort of all the microphones were fed right into that. The, the mix in the theater has nothing to do with what was on that album. Oh, that's but he said, there's some funny stuff on there <laughs> oh, from the microphones that were kept on when people did other things. <laughs> I've never heard any of it, but anyway, yeah. there was enough there to make a good album. Well, thank you for doing that, because I'm, I'm such a big believer in, in capturing... Uh, these shows that don't have, you know, the recordings that they deserve. We, it's it's been fun. That and the Ale- the Allegro one is the other one that I'm proud of. Um, oh, we have that, me and Julia the Studio Estelance. one. Yeah, the one that we did completely backwards, but yeah. I was very proud yeah. of that. <laughs> that. I mean, we did it. We we recorded the or- orchestra first in Bratislava. Because Larry Blanket said, you know, when the communists left, there are all these orchestras, and they, you can get them for nothing. I said, well, what do you mean nothing? He said, well, for for ten four hour sessions over a week was $35,000. And if anybody knows how much recordings cost, $35,000 doesn't really buy you a four-hour session in New York. Right. You know? So I thought, you know, if it, if we, if it is a disaster, $35,000 is actually not that big an investment. And Anyway, so, but there we were, having absolutely no idea who we were <laughs> going to put on that recording. Wow. He said, let's, let's make it sound not like one of those studio recordings that could have been conducted by a metronome. <laughs> and there's actually one thing in the, uh, the Gentleman is a Dope, where it's a very big slowdown. And um, Liz Calloway, who adores recording, took it as a challenge. Somebody else's problem, she's welcome to. The story that I've said before, not to you guys, is um, Audrey McDonald um, has the song uh, Come Home, which is the sort of climb every mountain um, in Allegro. And she, we got her in the studio, and she sang one take of it, and it was beautiful. And she said, um, I just feel like I'm being a good girl. Can I just sort of cut loose and just do whatever I want? And we said, sure, because we knew the orchestra track wasn't going to change. And she did this take that's on the album that is absolutely astonishing. But as an artist, she needed to feel that she wasn't actually paying attention to a regularized thing. Mm. She just wanted to perform it. And it was like, go Audra. Do you find when you, when you record things like Pipe Dream or Allegro or the sort of the lesser known titles, 
Does that bring in a whole new audience to these titles? Do people respond well to these recordings? They do, they do, especially the, the recordings. It doesn't make people instantly want to do the shows. It's been very interesting. Allegro, there have been a, a bunch of very interesting productions that have happened around the, the, the country, but not that many. No. Um, and Pipe Dream, I'm not sure that there have been any at all, uh, but people love the recordings and they hear it. But Pipe Dream's a strange, it's a strange show. I think it lives better as the recording that yeah. you did at City Center. Yeah, no, that's why we did it. Because the book is a little, uh, it's, it's tricky, or it's, and I, it's, don't, it's also, I don't know the right word, but. But it's also, um, you know, and I don't think, I don't think Rodgers and Hammerstein thought this way and, or understood it this way, but this role of the older, wiser woman who in all, in all the shows comes in at a very vital point in the story and sort of pushes just pushes some people over the the hump that mm -hmm. they need to, to sort of get to the end of the show. She's the lead in Pipe Dream, and she's a facilitator. Right. You can't make a facilitator the lead. So she has all these dumb songs, you know. <laughs> we love them, they're great songs. Sweet Thursday and, you know, The Happiest House on the Block. You know, <laughs> the I love Sweet alone, Thursday. You know. Yeah, no, Sweet Thursday's great. Well, you've mentioned Pipe Dream and Allegro, which are two of the sort of lesser known properties. I have to ask, does anyone ever do Me and Juliet? Hard ever, but yeah. it's a recording we should make. Yeah, and we talk about it from time to time. Um, don't know exactly how, but it's worth. I mean, it's, and also because I mean, part of what's weird about me and Juliet <laughs> is it's Rogers and Hammerstein trying to be hip and cool in 1953. Right, and interesting <laughs> that once they re, they sort of reset the rules of the musical theater with Oklahoma and Carousel. Then Hammerstein had the idea of Allegro to do something kind of an everyman story and try to innovate even further. Right. And it didn't really work. Then they went and did South Pacific and The King and I, which were blockbusters. And then it was Rogers who said, let's write a musical comedy, yeah. like what we used to do in the good yeah. old days. And that's what me and Juliet is. And it's like, well, they've, they've gone farther. They've gone beyond it. Right. So for them to attack a musical comedy, it's like, let Adler and Ross do that now in the yeah. 1950s. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit weird. It did give us a good song for the for the prince in Cinderella, however, at the there beginning of the new Cinderella. <laughs> there you go. Well, maybe Encores can can do it. I'd love to see it. Maybe I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I think to, I, you know to see what's there. And you know, yeah. Encores. We have this Rodgers and Hammerstein conversation every now and then in Encores. Yeah. Allegro yeah. was the second one they ever did in 1994. Mm. To this day, the smallest audience ever at Encores. Really? Yes. And yeah. at one point, I said, "Could we just remove that, please, from the statistics?" <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know. But they did Pipe Dream. Yeah. Actually, Flower Drum Song is one, the original Flower Drum, which, which mm -hmm. may get done at some point, yeah, which would be yeah. interesting to hear. Oh, you mean the original book? Yeah, the original, the 1958 version of it. Wow, that yeah. would be well, interesting. Jamie's a big Flower Drum Song fan. I'm a huge yeah. Flower Drum Song. The biggest song. one I've ever encountered. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> I that's that serious. Show. I think that's yeah. serious. I mean, I think, I think there, ha there has to be a sensitivity to who would mount it, who would direct it, who would you know, right. choreograph it. Because, you know, we, we all need to be sensitive to that. Things have changed. My head was up in the clouds. My heart was flapping its wings. I looked at the sky and wanted to try to do impossible things. What a day it's been for dreaming. My dreams have all come true. And if one for Doc and Sue turns out to be right, it's gonna be a sweet Thursday night. Uh, 
well, as you said, you weren't always the old guy. Right. Uh, once upon a time, you were the youngest guy in the room. I still think that. Uh, and that well, that's good. That's good. I love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that was when you had this formative experience uh, as a production assistant on the original production of Follies. Mm-hmm. Um, and we couldn't have you here today without you know stealing some time to talk about it because you wrote an incredible book called Everything Was Possible. I brought my copy here today. Thank you. Uh, about your experience. Um, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners who might not know, you know about the book or about your experience um, what you did and how it all came to be. Um, I saw Company, um, which absolutely blew me away uh, as a whatever I was, a 19-year-old. I did not know that the musical theater could be as contemporary mm. as Company was, as episodic. That's not the quite, quite the right w- word, but it doesn't tell a literal story. Right. It's sort of impressionistic. Um, I, I was a fan of Stephen Sondheim's work, but that's, it, you know, the whole thing about the original production just blew me away. Mm. Um, because I had been at the National Theater Institute at the O'Neill Center, mm. which, I, which is still in existence, Barry Grove and the Manhattan Theater Club yeah. and I were two of the students on the very first semester oh a long gosh. time ago. <laughs> but it was an amazing experience, and I did not want to go back to school. So the combination of knowing, having been, had my mind blown away by company and not wanting to go back to school, I knew that Follies was going into rehearsal in January, and I schemed this notion, why don't I see if I could be an observer on Follies and take copious notes and get two courses worth of credit as an independent study. Then I could overpoint my senior year and get rid of college. And I, everybody bought it. I, was a, I, I, I did a good sale <laughs> yeah, job, you were a good both sales on the job. college yeah, yeah. and on... You know, and so I was supposed to be the observer on, on, on Follies. And um, the first day I, that I arrived, it was very clear that it was wildly over budget at $850,000. Um, but they didn't have a production secretary or a production mm-hmm. assistant. So I became, there was, a, there was a position to fill that was more interesting than just sitting around and watching. Mm-hmm. And so it gave me a position in the company. But I still went home every night, sat at a typewriter, and wrote out four or five pages of everything that had happened that day in rehearsal. Mm. And I didn't throw them away. And, you know, Follies became a kind of major event. So I thought, oh, gee, someday it would be fun to, you know, take a look at the the journal that I kept and and do something with it. So the opportunity came up to to write it as a book. And it was a great, it was a great opportunity. I had a lot of the material already um, because I continued to run Rodgers and Hammerstein while I wrote that book. Didn't take any time out of my day job (laughs) when I wrote it. Once it got into production, there were deadlines (laughs) and things. But I found photographs. um, And actually, one of the early things was I knew that Frank Rich was an undergraduate at Harvard and wrote this extraordinary review of Follies when it was at the Colonial out of town. So when I met Frank, when he was the senior drama critic of the New York Times, and he was writing an article about Oscar Hammerstein and Steve Sondheim, so somebody put us together, and we were two very formal guys. And I said, I, will, I was a gopher on Follies, and I remember when your review came in, and he said, you were a gopher on Follies? I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, how many performances did Alexis Smith cut? Could I leave you? And it was like suddenly, whatever pretense might have been with these two august fellows, just right. melted away, <laughs> and we were two Follies mavens. That's amazing. You know, so the, the agent that put this book together said, if you could get Frank to agree to do an introduction, that would be good for the package of selling this there book to go. a publisher. Because this book was sold to a publisher very easily, and I realized people struggle for many years to get publishers interested in a book, and this one happened very easily. All I had to do was write it. Yeah, um, right. But, it, I mean, it was, it was a sort of blessed thing. But Frank was great. When I sent him the manuscript, 
He called me and he said, Ted, this is, this is really good. I said, oh, Frank, thank you. Like that. He said, no, listen to me. This is really good. Yeah. And I said, oh, thank you. And he wrote a wonderful, wonderful yeah. introduction. My wife, God love her, she still refers to herself as my first wife, which she is, but my only one. <laughs> when she started to read the book, she said, oh, I just thought you were, your writing was so good. Then I realized I was reading Frank's introduction. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she That's did finish incredible. the book and she was complimentary. But yeah, no, it's wonderful. And the thing is, part of what makes me proud of the book is, um, you know, I figured there are people who love follies who would read anything about follies. Right. But as I was doing it, I thought, you know, Follies was an original musical, not based on anything. So, and there were the people who put it together hadn't reached the sort of pinnacle of their careers. So everybody was a little hungry. And there's a real story to be told to everybody, no matter how old you are, about what the process of putting together a musical is. It's very complicated. It's full of emotional ups and downs. It's full of process. Mm. It, it, you know, it's full of mistakes. It's full of trials and errors. And I thought, if I can think about explaining that in this book, it would be more important than just a book about follies. And that's what pleased me most since it's come out of people who have said that. They said how, how amazing they felt the book was and how much they learned from it. Even, may I say, Stephen Sondheim, when he yes. finally read it, he said, I didn't know how it came out. I just wanted to know how it all came out. Well, there were enough people, when I wrote the book, there were enough people who were still around that I could say, okay, this is what I remember, was I right? You know, and, and they were great. Also, the other thing, and I would say this to anybody listening and anybody who ever contemplates writing a book about the theater, I didn't need to get even with anybody. It's telling a story, and that freed me up, I felt, to say honestly what I felt I saw. And what was interesting is nobody that I showed it to, and I showed it to the manuscript, to everybody who was alive who was a part of it, and nobody complained about the way I treated them, even though there are some times where I was like, I, if I didn't think they were behaving properly or if I thought they did something that wasn't right, I put it in there. But in the context of everything else, I wasn't scolding or doing anything right. like that. So, so I'm, I'm, I, I think it gives an honest, it tells an honest story about what putting that particular show together and finding a title was the hardest thing of all. <laughs> How many times did Alexis Smith drop? Could I think I it was you? six. She got very sick and I think it was six. I think it's in the book. You'll have to look. Yeah, no, it is. It is in the book. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. she got very sick, and that, of all songs to drop, and of course right. that's that's what Frank would zero right in on. <laughs> that's a really important song for her to cut. Why did they cut that? Right. What leave you? Leave you? How could I leave you? What would I do on my own? Putting thoughts of you aside in the south of France. Would I think of suicide, darling? Shall we dance? Could I live through the pain on a terrace in Spain? Would it pass? It would pass. Could I bury my rage with a boy half your age in the grass? <laughs> Bet your ass. But I've done that already. Or didn't you know, love? Tell me, how could I leave when I left long ago? Well, I guess you could leave me the house, 
leave me the flat, leave me the brocks and chagals and all that. You could leave me the stocks for sentiment's sake and 90% of the money you make and the rugs and the cooks. Darling, you keep the drugs, Angel, you keep the books. Honey, I'll take the grand sugar, you keep the spinach and all of our friends. And just wait a goddamn minute, what leave you, leave you, how could I leave you? Sweetheart, I have to confess. Could I leave you? Yes. Will I leave you? Will I leave you? Yes. One night you wrote in your, in your notes, yeah. you asked a question that um, really struck me as I was reading it. I wrote it down, and I want to ask you <laughs> your thoughts on it. You wrote, how do you keep perspective when you're so close to something? Oh. And that's something that I always think about when you're developing a new musical, and it's applicable to life in general. But um, all these years later, do you have a good answer to that question, or is it still sort of a, a, a thing that It's very with? hard yeah. to keep perspective. I think there, there, are, there are little tricks to know. I mean, one of the things that, that Josh Logan said, which I, which I keep thinking about, is an individual member of the audience is useless because <laughs> that person will tell you his or her opinion. Mm -hmm. And they may be right, they may be wrong. An audience as a whole is invaluable mm -hmm. because you can stand in the back of an audience and you can sense when they're with it, when they're starting to lose and coughing and you know <laughs> and it's really that's really really helpful it also that augurs for having as much of an audience that, that's again i hate to say this out of town what that provided was an audience that you knew was interested enough in the theater and interested in new things to come and take something in that they did not know mm. um and you know and there are enough experiences in my life where little changes would be made and you would suddenly just sense a sea change, because mm. now they were getting something that they hadn't been getting before. Mm. So I think that's you need the audience. That's you need the, the audience, component. and also, also you gotta, un, you, if at all possible, cultivate friends who you trust, because in terms of individuals, if you're gonna hear from individuals, it can be very helpful. I mean, it, there was, there used to be a lot more going out of town to see shows that are done by friends. Um, than I think there is today. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people with a lot of strong opinions, and, and I'm not sure that they're, they're always helpful. Mm. So the answer is it's hard to keep perspective. Yeah. Um, there are these things you can do that'll help you think, figure out whether your instincts were, are, were correct and continue to be correct, or whether you should make a little course change in it, but it's the, it's the hardest thing. And, it's an art. You know, and when, you, when you know friends or you've been involved in shows yourselves, when you get to that point where you think, oh my God, I, I, now I don't know if this is any good at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very true. You know, it, all, it always happens, and you, yeah. just, you have to take a deep breath and walk around the block, you know, <laughs> or you know, go home, go away for the weekend or whatever, and then come back and say, no, 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 I, I, I'm here because enough people had faith in what this is, and maybe we'll have a little tweak we'll, we'll need, but at the end of the day, we really need, we, you know, we need to do this. And, and I have to say, for, for Sondheim, the astonishing reimagining and, and, and reconsideration of shows of his that were considered unsuccessful. I mean, Follies was always, 
you know, somewhere between a cult and a hit. <laughs> you know, Merrily We Roll Along was a big, big flop. Yeah. Um, and yet it just keeps reemerging and people keep discovering it. And that's kind of amazing. And there's Sondheim over on, you know, Turtle Bay right. encouraging people to do things yeah. like this, which is just, I don't, I've never known anybody, any artist mm. to be not only alive for the reconsideration of his or her work, but encouraging and ready to comment. Right. I mean, we're doing a Sondheim Lyrics and Lyricists next week, and he's made, the, he's made very good comments about the song list and things you might think of. And in one email the other day, he even made an Yvonne DiCarlo joke. And I thought, <laughs> okay, we're okay. Yeah, you know? right? Well, we could talk about Follies yes, all day. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Hammerstein all day, but... Um, but I want to thank you for coming down. This was spectacular. Yeah. I think we need to have you back at some point to just <laughs> I, talk more about Follies. But <laughs> we'll, 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 see, we'll see if we can talk you into that. At Always some point. happy to come. <laughs> well, thank you so much. All right, my pleasure. Thank you. Rob here with You May Be Wondering. Over the course of their 17-year partnership, Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein wrote nine musicals for the stage, the film State Fair, and the TV special of Cinderella. In our talk with Ted Chapin just now, we touched on every one of those stage musicals, and three in particular that often get overlooked. Of course, we all know the big five, Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, The King and I, and The Sound of Music, each an unqualified hit in its time, and the subject of successful film adaptations and countless revivals if not an endless stream of high school and community theater productions. If you listen to this podcast, you also know Flower Drum Song, a sixth and though less well-known, a favorite of Jamie's that, is, that got generally positive reviews in 1958, ran a respectable 600 performances on Broadway, was adapted for the big screen in 1961, and received a landmark revival in 2002 with a new book by David Henry Huang. That leaves three more musicals, generally regarded as the lesser Rodgers and Hammersteins. You may be wondering about them and you come to the right place for a little introduction on these more obscure flops. The first is 1947's Allegro. Fresh off the groundbreaking success of Oklahoma and Carousel, each of which marked major milestones in the evolution of the American musical, Oscar Hammerstein, ever the intrepid dramatist, wanted to push the envelope even further by developing a new musical that was not an adaptation, but an original idea of his own, dramatizing the story of one ordinary man's life from birth to death. Inspired by the spare aesthetic of Thornton Wilder's Our Town, the show featured simple sets and costumes and the novelty of a singing Greek chorus to narrate the story. The writing ended up being rushed, the cast size and budget exploded, and while it was arguably one of the first concept musicals, way ahead of its time in 1947, audiences were cool to Allegro, and despite having the largest advance sale in history at that time, the show closed after only nine months. It would be the duo's last major attempt at experimentation. And like the other two big flops, there was no movie or London production, and there's never even been a Broadway revival. As Ted mentioned, Encores did do Allegro in 1994, and a wonderful complete studio cast recording was produced in, in 2008. In 2014, Classic Stage Company downtown mounted a newly revised version by director John Doyle, which I caught and happened to really enjoy. The second flop is 1953's Me and Juliet. This time, it was Dick Rogers who hatched the idea of a backstage musical that would explore the realities of life in the theater, done in the earlier style of the musical comedies that Rogers and Hammerstein had created separately before their partnership. 
featuring a show within a show and a melodramatic romance between a chorus girl, an assistant stage manager, and a jealous electrician, the writing of this show was also rushed, and the result deemed unintelligible by the Daily News. At 358 performances, or just under a year, though, it is the longest running of the Lester, Rogers, and Hammerstein shows, having turned a small profit and played a stint in Chicago before just about disappearing into history. The third and final is 1955's Pipe Dream, the biggest flop Rogers and Hammerstein ever wrote and produced. An adaptation of John Steinbeck's short novel, Sweet Thursday, itself written using the characters from his earlier novel, Cannery Row, the musical tells the story of a marine biologist in Monterey, California, and his romance with a prostitute named Susie. Among the many problems with this show is that the prudish Hammerstein could not write about a prostitute, nor could the culture stomach such a story. So the language was toned down, the nature of Susie's profession made ambiguous, diluting the whole enterprise. Following poor reviews, it closed after only seven months, losing every cent of Dick and Oster's investment. It's only been seen in New York in an encore's presentation in 2012 that was recorded thanks to Ted. I share the stories of these three forgotten musicals because it's worth remembering that for all their greatness, Rodgers and Hammerstein also stumbled a few times, like all good writers do. What matters is that they kept writing and never gave up on the art form that they helped shape, the legacy of which Ted Chapin guards to this day. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.